Sepsis is a life-threatening illness caused by your body's overwhelming response to an infection. UBC's Action on Sepsis podcast series focuses on telling the whole journey of sepsis from the perspective of the patient, with input from healthcare workers, researchers, and other individuals advocating for improved sepsis care nationally and globally. Now, join Christine Russell as she showcases a diverse collection of stories and shares knowledge from research and clinical fields to support learning so that we can help protect yourself and your loved ones. My daughter Ellie and I suffered from neonatal and postpartum sepsis due to group A streptococcus, which resulted in life-saving measures after her birth. To learn more about our story, I encourage you to listen to episode one of this series. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Lisa Holstey, Associate Professor of Occupational Science and Therapy at the University of British Columbia, to talk about follow-up care, development of neonates, and support for families of babies who have been ill and have spent time in the NICU. Thank you for joining us today, Lisa. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background? My background is in neonatology and pediatrics more broadly. Uh, my, I started off as a clinician working in the NICU um, as an occupational therapist, and I also worked in the neonatal follow-up program where we assessed a subset of the, the infants who came into the NICU uh, up until adolescence. And so I have a, a perspective of um, neurodevelopment in the nursery but also of the longer term perspective um, after the, the infants have been discharged and grow up to be um, adult folks. My area of expertise as a researcher, I went, I went back to school and uh, upgraded my skills and now I do research uh, full time as an academic, but my research is all still mostly in the nursery. And my goal is really to try to optimize neurodevelopment in children who have been born either very preterm or who have been critically ill uh, during the newborn period. And um, one of the ways that I try to do that is by managing uh, the stress and pain that infants have to undergo largely because they need medical procedures to ensure that they survive. And um, so I've spent a lot of time coming up with ways of assessing stress and pain in neonates who can't tell us directly that they're in pain. Uh, and also doing coming up with treatments that are not drug related for managing stress and pain. And, and the goal of this is really to try to protect the brain um, during, during this critical period of development. Can you explain some of the ways that, that you uh, do that then with with critically ill babies? Sure. Yeah. So some of the, some of the strategies that we use, uh, we, we really are in BC trying to focus on human touch interventions as much as possible. So the, one of, one of the things that I've studied in managing acute pain for babies where this would be relevant is looking at whether breastfeeding is uh, an appropriate method of reducing pain. And it works very well, particularly in full-term babies and old, more mature premature babies where sucking is very well established. We also use a strategy which we called hand hugging. And this is where a, a parent or other caregiver provides a contained 
uh, hold on the baby's arms and legs so that they stay in a curled position. And this can help if a baby can't be taken out to be held by the family. Um, in between those two are, uh, is a strategy called skin to skin holding or kangaroo care, where the, the family uh, members hold the baby directly on the family member's chest, the bare chest of the family member. And often there is a, a soother provided as well to uh, amplify the pain relieving strategies uh, that skin to skin provides. And so we have this kind of, um, if the baby has to stay in the bed or in the incubator, we try to use facilitated tucking. If they can come out and be held, and most of the time they can, uh, we would go to skin to skin. And then for more mature babies, uh, there is the possibility of using breastfeeding as well. So we have this continuum of touched base interventions that we uh, prefer. Uh, there are many units in Canada who use oral sweeteners. Sucrose is the most common. And uh, I'm part of a team that has done some research in uh, translational models. So using animals to test um, sucrose for pain mitigation. And we have concerns about repeated use of sucrose, particularly in immature premature babies, the, the very small babies in that, in how it impacts their brain. And so our particular unit uh, does not use sucrose. And um, I've just finished working with the child kind group at the children's hospital to relook at when sucrose might be appropriate. And, and what we're doing is moving away from using sucrose. It, it has its place in, in sort of a narrow um, application, but we're trying to move towards uh, the, the touch-friendly human-based interventions for, for pain and stress management. And can you explain, I guess, a little bit about how this type of um, pain intervention would affect the, the outcomes, long-term outcomes for the infants uh, long-term then? Sure. So we know, particularly in very tiny premature babies, that if you don't manage the pain very well, it alters their neurodevelopment long term. So it impacts their cognitive development and their motor development. And it's an independent risk factor uh, for that particular population. We know less about uh, I know less about the long-term implications for full-term children. There is some information though, as neonates, that full-term children, full-term infants also have uh, changes in how they perceive pain later on as older, as they get older, if they've had painful events, repeated painful events as a neonate. So an example would be um, an infant whose mother had diabetes and had, and so the baby had to have lots of blood tests. Those babies tend to anticipate pain more uh, when they get into a, a new situation where say blood collection is going to happen and they may have a, a more reaction to uh, a particular uh, blood test, for example. So 
pain is no different from any other experience that, that newborns have. Every, any experience is going to shape how the brain is formed. And so what, we're, what we try to do is mitigate the negative impact that the pain experience produces. The pain induces a stress reaction and that changes how the brain um, develops over time. And so the goal is really every time that there is an event where the skin is broken uh, or, you know, tape is removed or things like that, that, that cause distress um, and certainly pain, we, we want to treat each one of those events. And it's not appropriate to use heavy medications all the time. Um, there, those have significant side effects. And so we're trying to find strategies that may not be quite as effective as a very uh, strong opioid, but nevertheless reduces it enough so that outcomes can be um, improved. And I think I, and I would say one other thing about um, strategies, the, the, the overall strategy is to do the least amount of these as possible. And, um, so we can't, we are not at a place where we can completely stop doing painful things. Um, but every time that has to happen because the baby's life is at stake um, and their care needs to go forward and, and the physicians need information from blood tests and things like that, then, then we need to have interventions that happen at the same time. And so that you have this, you know, we would do that for adults and, and we need to be doing that for babies as well. So when it comes to long-term discharge um, protocols for babies, particularly with sepsis, what um, sort of protocols are in place? Particularly, I know you work in British Columbia and I mean, we're looking at this from hopefully from a national uh, perspective, hopefully down the road, but in BC, for example, what sort of long-term protocols are in place for babies with sepsis? Great question. So we have a number of uh, services that are, that are available uh, to families who have come through the NICU and may also be in the PICU. It just depends in our particular hospital, um, which unit they would go to if they have sepsis. Uh, the first and foremost, obviously, they would get checked by the health nurse and, and there are the community health people that would come into the home and do the normal follow up um, assessments for growth and development. Uh, but in addition, we have an organization called the Infant Development Program. And so one of the roles that I had when I was working clinically was to make sure that infants who might have risk for uh, difficulties with their development or may have some delays because of their illness, I would send a referral to the infant development program. And those programs are sprinkled throughout the province. And so there are, there is usually one fairly close by the local, the, the home of the family. And those, uh, the infant development program has workers who actually come to the home so that the family is not then having to bundle babies up and take them out and, and make it more inconvenient. So, and the age range that, that the infant development program works is from uh, discharge to three years of age. And then after three years, there is a second uh, group of people who can be used for developmental follow-up, which is the child development centers. And, they may become 
engaged earlier before the age of three, if there are particular issues that have been identified where the, the child or the toddler or the infant may need more um, intensive rehabilitation from OT, from sorry, from occupational therapy, from physiotherapy, speech and language, um, those services can be uh, provided through the Child Development Centre, either along with infant development program, or if the child has not had anything identified that needs that type of intensivity, then they might need it later when they hit school, for example, and you, or in preschool, things may, uh, may come to the front that weren't necessarily um, very obvious early on. And in that case, then we would refer the child or the pediatrician would refer the child to the child development center. And again, those are sprinkled throughout the province. And so you would have access to a center fairly close to home. And those have a uh, combined at home in center programs. So it just depends on the particular locations. Um, but Obviously, with COVID, people are looking at doing a lot of virtual care, and I'm part of a project uh, now that's uh, slowly getting up and running, looking at how child development centers can provide virtual care effectively to families so that it, again, reduces travel burden. Um, and that may take us a while to finish, but uh, we, are, we are very keen to make sure that those kinds of interactions um, are tailored for families and, and are useful and helpful. And once the children, I'll just finish that thought, once children get into school, then there are school-based therapists. And so there really is a continuum, albeit there are not enough of them. And I will say that throughout the system, there are never enough um, rehab individuals and we're trying to train more and we have an expansion program at UBC. And, in the north and hopefully soon in the Fraser Valley um, to train more therapists so that they can uh, provide follow-up for this critical group of children. In, in your opinion, are there, are there any gaps that are still remaining to be filled? Well, yeah, I, we, you and I have had a great conversation about that. I think that one of the things that, that we are together trying to do is to provide some initial information for families when they're getting ready to go home uh, from the hospital at, so that they are really aware of uh, what kinds of services they might wish to have their children um, engage with so that they're not just left on their own trying to figure out, you know, I'm concerned about this, then I'm not sure what to do about it. Yes, you can go to, to the family physician or the pediatrician, but there are also rehabilitation specialists who can be involved and infant development workers who are specially trained, who can provide information to you and your family to help promote the best outcome for your individual infant. And so our, our goal is to uh, provide some information that can be given to families at discharge so that it's not up to the family to always be trying to figure out what the system is, that, that we can show them the roadmap. And hopefully that will help uh, some of the, the falling between the cracks that can happen, particularly when infants have lots of medical follow-up appointments. It's an awful lot to juggle. 
And it can seem extremely overwhelming for the child, the infant, the family, uh, the extended family. And so if there's a, sort of a one, one place bit of information that the families can access when they're ready, when they feel they can manage it, then we're hoping to fill that particular gap. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think um, I, I think more so for our situation was that there wasn't any of that um, at all. And, I, and for us, it was just trying to figure out where, where do we go when, when those concerning symptoms started Mm -hmm. and that, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't the supports that even you, you mentioned uh, available to us or, or if they, there were, we, we weren't aware of them. Um, It was sort of a, okay, you're discharged, you know, she seems well, off you go. And hopefully life is normal after after such a significant illness. And, and so I think um, that by doing these things that we can, we can help sort of fill those gaps for um, families that have been through something similar to what Ellie has been through uh, and, and reduce some of the burden on those families and the healthcare system too, right? Uh, that, that, that it can become more streamlined. And that there, you know, that there's just this this flow and and pathway that that parents, families, and children can can take uh, that will just that will just further facilitate that rehabilitation for those patients. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, again, it's <clears throat> one can always go to the family physician or the pediatrician with concerns, and that's definitely a first place to go. I think these are additional supports that can be used and um, the, the referrals can happen. They're very straightforward and simple. And, you know, it's a, it, it may be electronic these days when I was doing it, we sent in a piece of paper. Um, but it's, again, it, it's providing options and, uh, and it's an in a home option, which I think is, is super important for supporting families, particularly at discharge when you're just trying to, get your family a semblance of a kind of a typical day and, and not having to have additional out of the, out of the house appointments if possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, thanks Lisa. Um, is there anything else that you feel that you'd like to add? Well, I think I, I I'd like to thank you for your advocacy and that you're taking the time to do this. It you're, uh, you've had a quite a road and, uh, whatever we can do to try to support families going forward, uh, we will do. And I, I hope that we can eventually see a national strategy around uh, newborns who've had sepsis, making sure that they have access to the kind of care we've talked about today. Thank you so much for joining us, Lisa. My pleasure. In the final episode of this series, I'm joined by Marianne Wiedler, Assistant Professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, to talk about postpartum sepsis, how it can happen, the risk factors, and prevention. Thanks so much for joining us. 
This has been the University of British Columbia's Action on Sepsis podcast. We thank the brave sepsis survivors who have come forward to share their stories. Our review panel that includes physicians, clinicians, and researchers, and our patient advisors. If you liked this podcast, make sure to hit subscribe to keep up with the latest episodes and give us a rating on your podcast platform of choice. Let us know what you think about this week's topic and join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. For links to topics on this episode, additional resources, or to listen to other Action on Sepsis podcast episodes, please visit our website at sepsis.ubc.ca slash podcast. Action on Sepsis is a plugged-in media production for the University of British Columbia. Thanks for listening.